millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Hello everyone and welcome to the History of Byzantium, episode 117, questions 4. Today I answer your questions about the neighbours of the Byzantine Empire those peoples we've been discussing for the last six episodes, and a few other questions that relate to Byzantium and the West. And that will conclude our tour of the Empire's edges, and we will then begin to discuss what's changed within the Roman world over the past hundred years. Listener P starts us off with an easy one. The Bulgars were not Slavs, right? If so, I take it that modern Bulgaria, which is mostly Slavic, is not to be confused with the ancient Bulgarian state. Hopefully by this point, listener P is fully in the picture, but just in case, the Bulgars were a steppe tribe who, as far as we know, spoke a Turkic language. They arrived in the Balkans back in 670, but over the next two centuries they were slowly Slavicized by the settled peoples they lived amongst, the majority of whom were Slavs. And so it was to be Slavic names and the Slavic language which came to dominate. The Bulgars would also slowly lose the lifestyle that they had brought from the steppes and become a sedentary people. And these patterns of adaption should be entirely familiar after last week's episode, where we learned, for example, that the Rus, a Scandinavian warrior elite, will slowly adapt to the ways of their majority Slav population. And not to mention the Khazars, who, after centuries of success, abandoned the hard nomad lifestyle in favor of the easier ways of settled peoples. Listener T asks why the barbarian peoples living in the Balkans chose not to become Roman. It's an excellent question, and I think there are a number of ways of interpreting exactly what is being asked. I'm assuming that Listener T is saying, why did the tribes of Slavs who lived near Thessalonica or Greece or Constantinople 
not choose to become a part of their neighbor's more sophisticated civilization? Why would they stay on their rustic farms and not follow the lure of those gold coins which they saw merchants using at the market? I suppose the first answer is that some of them did. Uh, Men with Slavic names do appear in our records working for the Byzantine state, and some of them are bound to be volunteers rather than those who were forcibly relocated. But I think the answer you're looking for lies in a comparison with the old classical Roman Empire. So back in, say, 200 or 300 AD, if I belong to a German tribe living along the Rhine or Danube, from my perspective, the empire looks absolutely huge, it looks peaceful, and it looks rich. So immediately I have three reasons to think migrating might be a good idea. It's huge, there's bound to be room for my family on a farm somewhere, it's peaceful, whereas our neighbouring tribes are threatening to raid us, uh, if we flee there we'll be safe, and it's rich. If we do well, we have the chance of creating a better future for our children, particularly if I join the army, which is looking for recruits and pays in cash. These conditions were no longer so tempting when it came to recent Byzantine history. I don't know how well informed the average Slav migrant was, but if he was told that every year his new Anatolian farm might be raided by the Arabs, I don't know how keen he would be to move. Uh, By contrast, for long periods, the Balkans were fairly peaceful. I'm sure there was intertribal conflict, but only in the last century did the Bulgars and Byzantines move from the east coast of the peninsula into the west. So for centuries, hundreds of miles of territory was unharassed by any major state. Similarly, the Byzantine army was keen on new recruits, but it wasn't handing out monthly salaries anymore. You might be offered a farm somewhere in Greece where you would have to report for duty in the local theme every summer. But that life was pretty similar to the life most Slavs were already leading. I'm sure most adult males were involved in at least basic defensive duties uh, every year um, to look after their tribe's land. So the opportunity to become a Roman was far less appealing than it would once have seemed. For your average Slav, the choice was to give up your religion, your language, your identity, and your home, just for the chance that you might have a better life. And those were not odds which would lead to mass migration. Listener S.H. asks, what happened to all the Slavs who settled in Greece? Were they tamed and Romanized or shipped off somewhere else? A listener P.S.C. wanted to know more about mainland Greece as well. I'll refer both of you back to episode 84, where I describe the situation in Greece. But the gist is that the area was now solidly under Roman control, and local theme armies demanded service from local men to defend the land from their neighbours to the north. The Slavs who lived there were expected to fight and pay taxes just like everyone else. They were also encouraged to speak Greek and to go to church. It would take generations for this to become the norm, 
and there was a revolt amongst the Slavs during the reign of Theophilus and more trouble under Michael III. However, there remained one refuge for Slavic culture in the Peloponnese. There's a mountain range there which you'll read as Tegetus, and it had been colonized by some hardy Slav tribes. Despite tangling with an army sent from Constantinople, the men of the mountains refused to join the local theme. They paid a nominal tribute to the authorities, but remained independent. Satisfied that they would be no more than a minor nuisance, the Romans left them alone. They just had too many other things to worry about. And so this pocket of Slav culture would survive all the way until the arrival of the Turks. That gives you an insight into the level of control which the Byzantines were able to exert in some of its wilder provinces. Prosperity was returning to the cities of Greece, though. The revival of trade and the activities of Venetian merchants had brought the coast into an expanding network. You may remember that on his way to the top, stable boy Basil found a wealthy patron in the form of a Greek widow named Danellis. She owned large flocks of sheep and employed a huge labour force to produce cloths and rugs that she could sell on to markets in East and West. Her wealth was enough to launch Basil's career, and once in power, he rewarded her. Listener CM asks about missionary work. Was it a common practice? Was Greater Russia the real target? Were missionaries in the 10th century very different from, say, missionaries in Africa in the 19th century? Missionary work doesn't seem to have been a regular activity of the Byzantine church. Uh, John Chrysostom expressed concern for the empire's neighbours, and certainly missionaries did go out to the German tribes, for example, many of whom became Aryan Christians. However, during our podcast... Most missionary activity has been state-led. Justinian, you may remember, was particularly active. He aimed to convert the Zani and the Lazikans, and he interfered in the Yemen to aid his co-religionists, the Ethiopians. After that, both Maurice and Heraclius had hopes that the Sassanids might convert, but nothing significant transpired. Once the Arabs arrived, the Romans weren't capable of much beyond baptizing the odd barbarian chief. It was Charlemagne who really got down to business, converting thousands of people at the point of a sword. And it was the spread of Frankish missionaries east which prompted the Byzantines to respond, first in Moravia, then in Bulgaria. We don't need to doubt the zeal of individual Christians like Cyril and Methodius, but mass conversions only seem to have occurred when states became involved. Greater Russia was not a bigger draw as such because its significance only developed much later. However, it is true that the Byzantines quickly sent missionaries to Kiev after the attack of 860. A naval assault was such a dangerous threat that to have a Christian ally there would be a great relief, though those early missions don't seem to have had much luck. 
I'm afraid I can't tell you much about how missionary work proceeded. We have almost no details about how pagan Slavs responded to church services or the like. As with many historical developments, I'm sure the key was the next generation. Children brought up as Christians by their co-opted parents would spread the faith amongst their uninitiated friends and colleagues. And as ever, I'm sure these things take several generations before one could actually visit a community and recognize its inhabitants as uniformly Christian. Listener CM also says it looks like a bunch of different writing systems were put together around this time with people the Byzantines interacted with. Uh, Glagolitic, various Georgian scripts, the Zekla script, uh, Marcomannic, Futhark. Is there a particular confluence of events that made it more likely for cultures to start writing? I think there are two answers to this question. Yes and no. Uh, Zekla and Futhark are Hungarian and Scandinavian written languages. No doubt, as those two people ran into the Frankish and Byzantine realms, there was an urgent need to improve communications, both for trading and diplomatic purposes. And soon enough, religious as well. I imagine there was a domino effect once a new language like Old Church Slavonic or Glagolitic became known, with the ideas which were used to create it spreading to neighbouring peoples. The no part, as listener CM anticipated in his full message, is that most of these alphabets were not developed from scratch during this period. Several had existed for centuries in one form or another. Here's a more complicated one from a fellow podcaster. David Getzin hosts A History of Architecture, the Lapsus Lima podcast, which gives a unique perspective on architectural history and the theory and practice of design. He asks, was the Cyrillic alphabet a Byzantine trick, as a Bulgarian friend of mine called it? something invented to isolate the Slavs and create a secret code. I've been convinced that Cyrillic is hard to understand on purpose. There is an idiotic glyph, among other things, called the backyard B, or hard sign. Uh, it's not pronounced, but is a whole letter to indicate the pronunciation of sounds around it. When you create an alphabet from scratch, why on earth is it this complex? especially when you see Slavic languages transliterated well elsewhere. Polish is a perfect example of why a new alphabet was completely unnecessary. Well, that is a fascinating thought, and I turn to help with this uh, to Eric Holsey of the Bulgarian History Podcast, and here's his response. Hi, everyone. This is Eric from the Bulgarian History Podcast, so, on to this question. Was Cyrillic a Byzantine trick designed to isolate the Slavs, to keep them separate from the rest of the world by giving them this weird, indecipherable alphabet that other people simply weren't going to use? I would say definitely no, and for a couple reasons. First, the Byzantines didn't create the Cyrillic alphabet. True, they sort of encouraged Cyril and Methodius to develop uh, Glagolitic, and so the Cyrillic alphabet is sort of descended from that, but the Cyrillic alphabet was developed 
in Bulgarian territory by, you know, monks and kind of scholars who were paid for by the Bulgarian state and operating under uh, the kind of aegises of the Bulgarian state. So in my mind, that number one means that, uh, you know, the Bulgarians were not financing and directing their own scholars to, to enact this kind of Byzantine conspiracy. But beyond that, I really think the genuine purpose of the alphabet was to Christianize and to kind of give the Slavs their own alphabet so they could be converted and could hear the gospel in their own tongue. The Byzantines understood that they wanted to Christianize these other people, both for political and for religious reasons. I mean, they did con- consider themselves a universal empire and consider Orthodox Christianity to be the kind of one true religion of God. So. I know I think you kind of combine all of these reasons, and I just really, really doubt uh, that Cyrillic was ultimately a trick. And if it was, it was a really bad trick because way more people use it than the Greek alphabet today. So there you go. Thanks for the question. Thank you, Eric. And remember to go to bghistorypodcast.com or find the Bulgarian History Podcast on your app or iTunes. To elaborate on what he said, many of the priests who accompanied Cyril and Methodius were native Byzantines, but they were clearly happy to leave home for the sake of spreading the gospel. Once they left Moravia, they settled in Bulgaria, and it was between them and their new Bulgar students that the Cyrillic alphabet was developed. And I definitely agree with Eric that these men were in no way under orders from the Byzantine government. And had the local Slavs disliked the new language enough, then I doubt it would have spread. But David's question does bring up something which I don't really know the answer to, which is, why not use the Greek alphabet for the Slavic tongue? I can only assume that Cyril and Methodius enjoyed creating a whole new writing system, and that they thought this would be easier for the Slavs to use. I certainly don't think that Photius thought ahead and wanted to culturally isolate the Slavic people. Roman snobbery was such that I doubt they concerned themselves with the future of the Slavs. They were more likely to believe that barbarian nations would eventually learn Greek in imitation of true civilization. Listener DM asks about the Holy Roman Empire and what people thought about its legitimacy. But the Holy Roman Empire does not yet exist. It will come to be by the end of the next century. In 900 AD, the imperial title was still just a title, which Frankish kings liked to hold. I hope, though, that the case of the Byzantines being referred to as Greeks in major Frankish literature gives you some insight. Intellectually, those in the West had already begun to distance the Byzantines from their Roman predecessors. Listener SH asks about Roman coins. If you've never visited the website or followed the show on social media, then now would be the time to do so, so you can see an example of the following. Roman coins at this time have words with a jumble of Greek and Latin letters mixed together. Is this an artistic convention holding out from an earlier time, or is there some other reason for this alphabet soup? The earliest coins minted in Constantinople maintained all Latin writing, as had always been the case with Roman coins. And even as Latin faded as a spoken language in the East, 
it remained on the coins as a source of continuity and legitimacy. But the influence of Greek slowly began to be felt. On Justinian's coins, for example, Augustus was abbreviated to AVC, whereas in the past it had read AVG. Uh, Think of the V as a U, so A-U-G, as we would see it, the first three letters of Augustus. It's just that the, the U looks like a V on the coins. In Greek, the sound G is expressed by the letter gamma, the third letter in the Greek alphabet, equivalent to the Latin C. Hence, AVC appears on the coins, which... I'm not sure was very helpful to anyone, but nevertheless, it wasn't until the time of Constans II that Greek letters actually began to appear on the coinage. Uh, this followed on presumably from Heraclius's decision to style himself Vasilefs rather than rely on Latin titles. Uh, though one or two Greek letters appeared, uh, it wasn't until a bit later on, another century forward, when the Isaurian emperors, Leo III and Constantine V, actually put the title Vasilefs on the coinage. And even then, they still used mostly Latin letters. Hence why you, an English speaker, can read most of the names on the coins. You may at this point see B-A-S on some coins, and this is short for Vasilefs, which, remember, reads Basileus in English, so B-A-S is short for Vasilefs, the same way A-V-G was once short for Augustus. This is all really clear, isn't it? Anyway, as I mentioned in the narrative, once the Romans accepted Charlemagne's title, they changed their own titles accordingly, so that Michael Ragave stopped being simply Vasilefs and became Vasilefs Romeon emperor of the Romans, to denote that Charlemagne was merely emperor of the Franks. And so what we're left with is the Latin spelling of that word on the coins, but with a few Greek letters sprinkled in to help the locals understand the phrase more clearly. Whether it did or not, I don't know. I've put up an image of one of Leo VI's coins for you to have a look at. You should be able to read... Leon on Christo Vasilevs Romeon. Listener E.T. says, The Byzantine Empire had a very sophisticated state for its time, and despite the invasions and rebellions, the government kept functioning well. Comparatively, were there any states similar to Byzantium? I know many of their neighbours were typical feudalistic kingdoms. I think we'll push a full discussion about feudalism down the road for now. It will be easier to discuss when the Crusaders and Byzantines are face-to-face and give voice to how they perceive one another. But I think it's worth saying that although the Byzantine state was more cohesive than many of its rivals, that doesn't necessarily make it much more sophisticated or powerful. The Franks and the Muslim states of the East had luxury goods, intellectuals, armies and economies which rivaled or outshone the Romans. What is particular to Byzantium is how long 
their political traditions were able to survive intact. Certainly, no other state could claim to be over a thousand years old, or even 600, if we go just by the founding of Constantinople. Speaking of which, not to pour too much cold water on this idea, but we should remember that it was the unique geography of the Roman capital that had made all this possible. Without those triple walls and the golden horn, Roman government probably would have ended 200 years ago, if not before. As sophisticated as their government seemed, the Romans owed more to nature than they did to nurture for their survival. Over the next few end-of-the-century episodes, we'll be delving into the Byzantine state and uh, life in Anatolia, and perhaps we'll see a bit more nuance than the continuity of emperors and bureaucrats might imply about Byzantine sophistication. Connected to this issue, listener SF asks if Byzantium still had its luster. Were its gold and pomp still the greatest thing in Europe? I answered a similar question last century, and I think the answer has been on a slow trajectory towards no all this time. When Charlemagne was crowned emperor, he borrowed bits of ceremonial and fashion from Byzantium, so in that sense the Romans remained the guide for how to be imperial. But as we've discussed, his biographers would denigrate their eastern neighbours as mere Greeks. And as the Frankish world became ever wealthier and more self-confident, they would need to look east less and less for ideas about grandeur. Roman titles and luxury goods were still valued by Venetians, Pechenegs and Armenians, but they all knew that Aachen or Baghdad could offer something similar. Again, Constantinople itself was where the Byzantines really shined. It was still the largest city in Europe by a mile. Its walls and churches still blew the minds of men who came from humbler climes. Famously, the Varangians, who had ranged across large tracts of the known world, came to call it Miklagard, simply translated as the Great City. My goal is to do a long episode on the Great City at the end of the next century. Listener E.T. also asks, During the Roman Republic, the port city of Brindisi, or Brundisium, was strategically important. How much was this so for the Byzantines? As you may remember, Brundisium was the main port for journeys east towards Greece from Italy. Pompey fled from Caesar from there. Obviously, it was lost to the Romans when the Ostrogoths took control of Italy, then recaptured by Belisarius's forces. The Lombards sacked it in 674, but rebuilt the town later on. Its fine natural harbour made it too good a spot to leave vacant. The Romans eventually retook it, but Arab pirates stormed it in 836 and operated in the area for some time. Thanks to the activity of the Venetians, Brundisium wasn't as vital as it had once been. Their merchants could now make their way down the Balkan-Adriatic coast instead. 
but it remained one of the two most important ports on the southeast Italian coast, along with Otranto. It will be awarded an archbishop in the 11th century, so the town must have been thriving from around 900 AD onwards. In the same region, listener J.R. asks, Is it my understanding that in Sicily and southern Italy, the primary language was Greek? Was this the legacy of ancient Greek colonization, or was the language reintroduced following Justinian's conquests? The Greek language had indeed survived in the area throughout the Roman imperial period. Stronger in Sicily than on the mainland, but nonetheless, it remained in use. Despite the dominance of Latin on the mainland, half of the Roman world spoke Greek, so there was no need to stop using it. Possibly the arrival of the Goths was more of a threat to its survival, as they would have had no need of a third language. But the Byzantine reconquest prevented a precipitous decline. Then, during the upheavals of the 7th century, many Greek-speaking refugees came to Italy, from both the Balkans and the eastern provinces. After the Lombard invasion, though, it was necessary for most people in Italy to speak Proto-Italian. By 900 AD, only in the very south of the Italian toe and heel would you find Greek as the primary language. On Sicily, it remained, but by now, many were learning Arabic. Across the whole region, though, uh, even in Rome, there were Byzantine monasteries where daily life was conducted in Greek. Listener J.R. also asks if Latin had completely died out, And I think the answer would be that Proto-Italian, French, Spanish and so on were the day-to-day language of actual communities. Latin was still spoken in church and used in letters between well-educated people. It remained very much the lingua franca of the Western world. Finally, several listeners asked how on earth Latin speakers were able to survive north of the Danube in order to, centuries later, create the modern state of Romania. I think this is a question I'll have to address post-1453, but as it's on your mind, let's just use the knowledge we have now to shed some light on the issue. As you may know, the people of the area spoke a Romance language, one with its roots in Latin, that somehow survived the waves of Huns, Avars, Bulgars, Magyars, Pechenegs, and so on. These are lands north of the Danube, where once upon a time the Roman province of Dacia had stood. The answer I'd suggest is that the Roman colonists who moved in brought vulgar Latin with them as their spoken tongue. The locals adapted somewhat to this over the next two centuries before the Romans left during the crisis of the third century. The language which then survived amongst the settled population who remained was a Latin-Dacian hybrid. 
the area they lived in were the regions around the Carpathian Mountains, as in the relatively less productive spots, either side of which were the lush grasslands of the steppe and the Hungarian plain. So the key to their survival would seem to be that the various steppe tribes who passed through had little interest in forcing the locals to adapt to their culture. So long as the hill dwellers paid tribute and provided goods to their masters, they could continue to speak whatever language they pleased. It's worth knowing that there were several different Proto-Romanian dialects. It wasn't all one language before the modern state was created. And that Romanian, as a language, contains about a hundred loanwords from the various Slavic languages. As we've seen with the development of Bulgarian and Rus states, if the future Romanians had lived in a more fertile spot, they would have been pushed into accepting a new majority culture. But apparently they weren't. I will happily dig further into this at the end of the narrative, but hopefully we're all learning about state and nation formation together, and this is the answer that suggests itself to me. That's it for now. I'm off to further research matters such as the army and the economy and the aristocracy of Byzantium and some very important changes that took place during the 9th century. In the meantime, if you're watching the new HBO show Westworld, then you might enjoy a podcast called Radio Westworld. It's uh, by my friend and uh, former co-host uh, Roberto Suarez. We uh, hosted a Game of Thrones podcast together. He's now covering Westworld with his friend John, and they do a great job. So check out Radio Westworld if you'd like something else to listen to. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.